2: It was a busy old show today, wasn't it, Jennifer? I felt a bit exhausted by it. Busy. We had everything from the king's wind <laughs> to... I think we did very well not to have any uh, slightly puerile comments off the back of a long piece about King Charles's wind.
3: Actually, can you be honest with me? I, I was having a conversation with myself. Could you spot a wind farm? Yes. They're, they are what I think they are.
2: Yes, with the great big turbines. Yes. What do you think well, they Well, because
3: might be? uh, I've seen them inland and then, so just off Crosby Beach, where I, I go quite a lot because it's near where my um, folks are, um, there is a huge, well, there are loads of wind farms around that stretch of the Merseyside coast. Yeah. Um, they are definitely wind farms, are they? I'm just checking. I mean, they certainly look like they
2: are. What, d- what might they be if they weren't wind farms? Uh,
3: well, at the, be- the beginning of a very stealthy alien invasion, okay. which, which just seems to have taken root in the seabed.
2: Or more See, art.
3: We ended up having a conversation about that that was really fascinating with a guy from a think tank called Commonwealth, and it's just about who owns, who knew, I didn't know, that you could own a bit of the seabed. No. Well, I suppose it's stupid of me. Of course, well, I didn't
2: know that you could sell so much of our seabed. So he was explaining that a massively high percentage of the wind farms around our coast are owned by other states, notably the Nordic states. Yeah, but we don't own any of theirs.
3: It, it is. It just is a bit strange. I think. Interestingly, I think a lot of foreign governments also have quite large stakes in some of our privatised rail companies. Well, they do. China Uh, has quite a lot of... Yeah, and it's just... ...stake everywhere. It's really, it's quite odd that we just seem to have accepted all this. Anyway.
2: Well, I think the fault lies with journalists, doesn't it? What? I can't believe I I thought journalists were to blame. I I mean, so although it might sound magnificently kind of curious and meerkat-like on our programme for both of us to ask, uh, you know, surprised questions about wind farms, it's quite shocking that... We haven't thought to ask those questions before. Well, it is. Um, I remember a time, I think at the beginning of
3: the 21st century, when the state of Iceland had become excessively rich and was buying loads and loads of British businesses. And every single time it happened, either me or my then colleague, Peter Allen, would say, why, are how are Iceland doing this? And they just were. And then they it all went belly up. So, well, it
2: did, because their banking system crashed, yeah, didn't it? we put a lot of money into for it. For a time, they were absolutely swimming in dosh. Well, I mean, this is the kind of geopolitical chat that everyone has tuned in for, it's Jane. It's award-winning. I'd like to pursue both of those topics, though, so we will do and We'll do and it quite seriously over the weeks to come. We were joined by the wonderful Jane Mulkerens, associate editor of The Times magazine today. She's had a very, very busy week. Uh, she's been off to Ireland, and that story will be in next week's magazine, all about the lives of some Ukrainians refugees who were taken in over there a year ago Uh, but today she gave us a sneak peek into the magazine you can get tomorrow it's not tomorrow is it the magazine that you can get on saturday Since we last spoke, because you were here being the Jane on Monday... Jane on tap. You have <laughs> been to Ireland and back. I have. The feature, uh, when will that be published? That will be published very quickly. Um, that's
4: going to be next Saturday, a week on Saturday's magazine. <laughs> and so you when I'm here when next Thursday, we can talk about it. Yeah, it's I about have... Ukrainian refugees. It is, yes. Yeah. About um, in Ireland, um, in a hotel which has been taken over... Um, as a residence for Ukrainian refugees in a very small village in rural Connemara. It's sort of like Ballykiss Angel with refugees, yeah. Uh, how many refugees has Ireland taken? Though? Almost 80,000. Right, which is, a, is that about the same it's as It's about these? the same as here. But of course but it's a smaller country, much yes, smaller country. It's there's 5 million people in Ireland right, as wow. opposed to 70 million. So God. yes, proportionately it's a lot higher. Yeah. I'm and sure. they are struggling to house them now. Um, they are appealing to people who have you know, second homes and holiday homes and stuff because they are running out of space. Mm. Well, they've run out of space. They're they're accommodating people in sort of sports stadiums and stuff. Um, So it's, yeah, I mean, Ireland has done a very good job of hosting, but it doesn't have unlimited resources. I mean, nowhere does. No.
2: So we'll look forward to reading all about that in next week's magazine. But in this week's magazine, my, my, it's packed. It's a bumper issue, isn't it? You've got a fantastic interview with Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, interview by Caitlin Moran, uh, she reveals that she's got a graphologist. A graphologist. I love that. She runs detail. every
4: potential date past not just her graphologist, but also her aunt and the nannies, plural, plural nannies. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what do you mean? Runs every date. So if she's got an important event to do, she gets the handwriting analysed.
2: No, a love interest. Yeah. So, int- okay. yeah, She'll get a love yeah. interest to write her a note and then she runs it past all of these people, including the graphologist, who's quite often said, don't go near them with the barge pole. And she does
4: anyway, as she reveals in the
0: interview.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's not very spontaneous as a way of dating, but,
4: well, you know, due diligence. It which served her well. She has, I think she has a, a younger man in attendance at the moment, doesn't she? She definitely so, does. Apparently sure. he's had his, his handwriting analysed and right. he got in. Well, yeah. she's, she's doing something yeah. right. <laughs> if that's what you're into. Yeah. It is, I have to say, it's a brilliant. interview and if you ever wanted to go on a muddy walk of an afternoon with catelyn moran and helena bonham carter this is basically what you can do in this interview well
3: i don't want to give it away but basically catelyn very cleverly makes the point that um helena is always talked of as wildly eccentric and deeply peculiar and in fact she's simply a lively highly intelligent middle-aged woman yes who is by the way i've i've interviewed her years ago. she's the most beautiful most beautiful woman
4: um, she has the most extraordinary skin. She really does. I, I was uh, I popped along to the shoot, which is our cover image, and she just looks extraordinary. She's so beautiful. Her bone structure, her skin. Yeah. Yes. She's as we say. Younger
2: man, she's mm. doing something right. And she's got very interesting things to say about getting through your teenage years and trying to find your own style yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just the fantastic detail about why she doesn't wear jeans. And I will just leave that hanging so we don't have to tell everybody no. everything. No, we no. want them to read the magazine. Um, I think you've got some, some other cracking articles in here, including some interviews with young men who are followers and likers mm. of Andrew Tate. Yeah, I think... Um... Since Andrew Tate was arrested at the end of
4: December, there's obviously been uh, a huge amount written and discussed about him um, and about the misogyny that he punts on social media. And I think it's very easy, obviously, to condemn it, but it's also very easy to look away and not really uh, read or or, or listen to anything that he's said. And I, I think that's really dangerous. I think, you know, that can lead to echo chambers and... As a magazine, I mean, we interviewed Andrew Tate last September, which was potentially quite controversial because um, many people, you know, quite rightly condemn what he's saying and what he's preaching. But it's also your 14-year-old son knows who he is and knows what he's saying. So I think, uh, I think as Times readers and potential parents of those teenagers, you know, you need to know who this man is too, and. I think lots of people didn't before his arrest. My dad asked me over Christmas who's Andrew Tate because he didn't know. So in the magazine, we have talked to young men who have attended Hustlers University, which obviously isn't a real bricks and mortar university. It's his online courses that that he runs. Um, And, you know, they say a lot about why they are attracted to the sort of thing that Andrew Tate is preaching, which I think we need to understand
2: to, to know why this man gets 500 million views on YouTube. So one of the boys that you've spoken to, I mean, he's a young man, uh, Ellis Kalmayne, who's 19... He's from Romford. He describes himself as a boxer. He's got 200,000 TikTok followers himself. Uh, he says if you watch Andrew Tate in context, you'll see he's got a lot of respect for women. His girlfriend has said that he's a respectable man and I think his arrest is unjustified. It's made him even more famous. I actually can't dispute the last comment. No,
3: that's a worry, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I was talking to a teacher the other day, actually, who said that they are having um, assemblies in their school about Andrew Tate mm. and about how... Wrong, he is about just about everything, and these assemblies are being filmed, and then uh, by the by, some of the pupils, and then the footage is sent or uh, towards Andrew Tate. I imagine he doesn't receive very much at the moment, but they are letting him know just how important he's become. <sighs> so he is now someone that has to be warned about in British school assemblies. Mm. Which you imagine, if you're inside Andrew Tate's head. It's probably not a bad thing. He's yeah. probably delighted.
2: But I was just so right. heartened, Jane, to see all of these, uh, you know, first-person experiences from young men. Because of course, if you just tell someone that they're wrong, uh, they're yeah. just going to go and find more reasons why they're right. Especially when they're that age. That's that's what you do, isn't it? Yeah, and I think mean, so, we, we have
4: to ask them why. We have to listen to them. Yeah, and there's we a reason for his
2: popularity. Absolutely. What, what void he's filling. Yep. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I did like the <laughs> trends that need to end in 2023 including meal box services flexitarianism I
4: did agree with Ben on this. I think I think it's just lacking commitment to anything oh, isn't it? I'll Flex- oh, go on then. I'll have some meat. Oh, go on then. And right. foraging as well. I mean maybe we could get Hannah Hannah, to talk about this when she's on in a while. I think I think foraging, who really does foraging? Well, I think there's it's a made picture David chefs. Beckham
3: foraging in the magazine. I've seen
4: it. <laughs> is he foraging or just looking for his dignity? I don't know. Oh, Jane, harsh judgment. <laughs> that was Jane
3: Mulkerins, who is Associate Editor of The Times magazine, which you'll find with your copy of The Times every Saturday. Now, on our Times radio show yesterday, we talked to a football fan, Katie Price, who is a big fan of Arsenal, and she'd been on the receiving end of some very unpleasant anti-Semitic abuse when she was in a pub in North London watching the Arsenal-Spurs game over the course of last weekend. And it is an unfortunate truth that anti-Semitic incidents do seem to be on the rise uh, in Britain, on British university campuses, apparently, and also in the States. Um, The US has seen more anti-Semitic incidents between 2018 and 2020 than at any time in the last 40 years. Now, Alex Edelman is a comedian and his latest show, Just For Us, is sort of an attempt to try to explore why. He's a stand-up comedian. He won the 2014 Edinburgh Fringe Newcomer Award. He's in London doing a show called Just For Us until the end of February. Now, the premise of Just For Us is that Alex decided to go and spend an evening with people who call themselves white nationalists. And we asked him if he'd just like to explain why he made that decision.
1: I mean, not really, because it's the show, but I will. Uh, give us a little show, I mean, tease, like, I'm sure. She's paid a for t- a ticket, for Alex. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, the don't give it all away. The, the tease is that I saw something on social media and and so... Um, I went to this, uh, uh, this, this thing said, if you're, if you're, cur- if you have questions about your whiteness, then come to this place at this time. And I went and there was, a, it was a group of people who was who had broadly termed to be somewhere between white nationalists, and anti-Semites, you know, I don't want to label anybody, but, uh, but so, yeah, so I, I went and, uh, and I sat there and that's sort of the sh- it's sort of a, uh, that anecdote is sort of the backbone of a show that more closely examines like you know, uh white nationalism but assimilation more than anything else. The uh, the the way that we all of us, not just Jews, the way that all, you know, that all of us present ourselves and represent ourselves and feel about how we have to, you know, fit in to various groups. And so, I think people are surprised and they find uh, obviously the show has found resonance with Jewish communities in New York and DC and 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 here in London, but but people who are not Jewish um they have been, you know, they resonated uh, with it as well, and uh, and the show did very well in Edinburgh in front of largely almost exclusively non-Jewish audiences, and you know the show is it's a comedy show, so you know.
2: So at at the heart of a lot of your comedy uh, seems to lie an ability to uh, really take the mickey out of your family Alex and, and some <laughs> some of it really uh, you know it is it is spot on uh, how tell us a little bit about your dad an extremely intelligent man but not oh, yeah. in not in the eyes of your mum i think oh you, that's so yes, that's yeah. so
0: funny
1: yeah well my dad is a very my dad's a professor and an academic and uh, esteemed researcher in Boston. He's a cardiologist and a biomedical engineer. And I say, uh, and to my mother, he's the dumbest piece of trash who's ever lived.
3: But you, hang on, your and, mom is a clever woman. She's a lawyer, isn't she?
1: Yeah, so my mom's a lawyer. But it doesn't matter how clever uh, how clever my dad is. To, to my mom, he's just an idiot. And so that's not in this show. But I've talked about it on television quite a bit. And people sometimes sometimes come up in, to my father in synagogue or at work and say, oh, I heard the bit about, about your wife thinking you're a moron. And it's, it's become, my father handles it with a great amount of grace. He's a very graceful guy.
2: But do you know what? I mean, I don't want to make something incredibly kind of turgid wow. and serious out of uh, out of your comedy Alex, But but it's such a thing, isn't it? If a... If a f- I'm not sure that you could twist that around. I mean, it works, doesn't it, that your mum kind of belittles your dad and he's this amazing heart surgeon. He almost won the Nobel Peace Prize. And, you know, I think it taps into a kind of comedic belittling of men. But if you flip that around, you know, it is no longer acceptable to have a comedic belittling of women, is it?
1: I mean, I've thought of doing it that way. So, I mean, my my mother, though, I make fun of my mother for... Uh, I make fun of my mother for shortcomings, but no, I a comedic belittling. You know, I by do, the way, yeah, I don't know whether like, it
2: would work. I'm just asking a genuine question. I'm not making. You know a kind what's of so interesting is it. that
1: I think you can, uh, you know, not to get too into the nitty gritty. Although this is one of my favorite subjects, the vicissitudes of how you make a joke about a difficult topic. You, I could make a joke about my mother, provided I made it clear to an audience that I was representing an individual instead of a collective. So so you could, but you'd have to adjust for how society treats and thinks about women, and just the same way you adjust for a society treats and thinks about men. You'd be shocked by how many, you know, what people would deem to be social pitfalls are avoided by inserting one or two clauses into a sentence in a joke. And so... Sometimes people say you can't joke about this anymore. You're going to offend people with this. And in the back of my mind, if I'm being honest, whenever I see a comedian offending people. I honestly feel like it's mostly a craft failing on the part of the comedian. There are exceptions to the rule, but most of the time I go, Ah, you could have used this forward clause there because I've used that in the past to avoid offending people. Oh, wh- like, go on. What's your favorite four word clause? No, I'm not. I'm, everyone is everyone is different. I'm just saying that all you need to do is make it clear that you are making fun of one person instead of a large group of people. But you know what? A forward clause. How about this? Is in my personal experience. Okay. That's a good. That's a good forward clause. And then no one can accuse you of generalizing. Like there are so many different ways to get a joke across without you know without making people feel uh, belittled. And I do think that my generation of comedians in particular is much more is, is very conscious of that.
3: We are chatting today to the American Jewish comedian Alex Edelman about his latest show on in London until the end of February called Just For Us. Now, I asked Alex how he sets the tone and how he just actually struts on stage and how does he decide what he's going to say first?
1: You know, that's so interesting. No one's ever asked me about that. But I think if I had to guess, it's no, no, that's no, that's not. I really am. uh, You know, if I had to guess, it's that, first of all, I think a lot of the stuff that you've seen is me being on television. Yeah, sure. And so for me, sometimes it's on a talk show in America. And for me, those talk shows were very big deals growing up. And so not to give too much away, but – I am quite nervous sometimes when I'm doing those talk shows when you're performing in front of your favorite comedians. And in the case of Stephen Colbert and Conan O'Brien, comedians that I grew up idolizing and are some of the reasons I was comedians and on those TV shows, they're right there. They're sitting over your right shoulder. And so when I say gosh or wow, I think it's me partially acknowledging how crazy it is for me to be doing it and how, uh, how wonderful, uh, the experiences, and obviously the flip side of being nervous is being excited, and so uh, all I can remember, the primary emotion that I remember from performing on those shows, including like Live at the Apollo, is, you know, is a feeling of excitement. I am ultimately a comedy fan also, so mm. I think people forget this sometimes about comedians, but it is a, it is really cool to do The job that, you know, that most of us loved uh, when we were children. I always want to be a comedian. I have the chance to do it now. It's just a really, really salubrious gig.
2: It's such a high stakes career, though, isn't it? With so much kind of jeopardy involved. Uh, Do you have a plan? Do you set yourself targets? What's on the horizon?
1: Well, uh, the show... Uh, that i'm doing now has been a you know a wonderful experience in the sense that it's just run and run and there are offers to do it in many other places and 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 i won't do it forever uh, i think the show will be done sort of by the end of this year beginning of next it will it will it will be in in london for a while here and then uh and then it'll go to boston my hometown eventually and then it'll go back to new york and it'll be filmed as a special and uh and i have some television work lined up and i'm writing a film and And so there is no, I guess, plan. All this is just a hobby that got out of hand. Like uh, winning that that newcomer prize in Edinburgh turned me from, you know, a waiter in bad restaurants in New York into a full-time comedian, and that was 2014. And I've always, thank God, uh, never had to look for work outside of comedy beyond that and make a very wonderful uh, living doing the thing that I love. It's an extreme privilege.
3: All this, and we have... Still to mention your brother's Olympic career as uh, a now is it a bobsleigh or a skeleton?
1: He's he's doing bobsleigh now. Yes, um, and he represents uh, and Israel,
3: I, doesn't he? We should say.
1: Yes, I, I joke. I, I joke that my nickname for him is Shul Runnings, oh, very uh, good. which good. yeah. Shul means synagogue in Yiddish. It's my best work, <laughs> and um, and yeah, Aj Aj represented Israel in skeleton in the 2018 Winter Olympics, and. It, uh, Fell just short of qualifying for 2022. We were so gutted. They cut two spots because of COVID, and he would have been in the first of the two spots. So, very sad. But, uh, but yeah, AJ is. I'm the least impressive member of my family. I always tell folks, and it's true. My mother, my father, my two brothers are all, you know, lavishly accomplished in their various non-entertainment fields, and so I'm sort of. Uh,
2: now, do they you know, envy? First- do they envy your freedom?
1: Oh, no. I mean, I think they realize how, uh, I think they realize how isolating it can be. Look, I'm, I'm, I love London, but I'm in this, you know, I'm in a pokey flat and, in uh, near the river for, for a few months while I do my show. And it's a dream come true. But also I miss my bed in you know, Los Angeles and I, uh, so, there's a flip side to that isolation. Can I just say, sorry. It's a
3: beautiful day in London today. It's cold, admittedly, but the sun is shining, the sky is blue. You are a lucky, lucky man. Is, it is
1: so cold.
3: Yes, it is cold. Come on, get over it, man. Um, <laughs> I just want to know what, um, how quickly can you tell when you're doing this show or any other that this is a good show, that you're on form, and actually, perhaps more importantly, sometimes that the crowd in the house are receptive?
1: You know, I sometimes, uh, sometimes the two are divorced. I had a show the other night where this was receptive, but I was, my tempo was a tiny bit off. And so on those nights, you sort of take, you sort of take uh, what's, you sort of play it as it lies, I guess. But, um, but I know, I know early on, Stuart Lee says he can tell from the sound of the Going into the venue, how they're going to be. And I can feel that sometimes, uh, too. The funny thing is, if if an audience isn't giving you what you want, you never stop trying to get it out of them. So by the end of the show, at least you've tried and they can see you trying and you're doing, you know, you're doing your, your level best. And if the audience is with you, then you're just sort of riding along with them. So it's sort of a win-win situation if you've got a bit of a level-headed outlook. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, every audience can vary. The one thing that's important is um, my ex-girlfriend, Katherine Ryan, who's a brilliant stand-up comic here in the UK, like to say that you have to let a bad show go by 10 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock the next morning. And so I sort of try to live my life by that dictum. If it's a bad show, and you let it, you know, I mope for a few hours and then by 10 o'clock I let it go. Have
2: you got a lucky night? Is Tuesday better than Wednesday? Oh, that's a good one. Wednesday not as oh, good as Thursday.
1: I, I love a Tuesday show. Do you know you. why? It's not quite Monday, but it's not quite Wednesday. Um, I, like, uh, I, like, I like Tuesdays. Tuesdays for me are a lot of fun. And also I'm always in a, oh no, I'm always in a good mood on a Tuesday because most comedians do either Thursday to Saturday or Wednesday to Sunday mm-hmm. or sometimes Thursday to Monday uh, in the States. So for me to be performing on a Tuesday is a reminder that I have work and it's not a time that most comedians get to work. It's usually a day off for comedians. And so for me, it's a privilege to be able to perform on Tuesday. I know that sounds so stupid, but it is no, a thousand.
3: We're all, we're all a little bit eccentric, Alex, and I'd, I'd certainly put you in the category of really quite eccentric. That was the American comic Alex Edelman, reflecting on how Tuesday
2: is a good day for him to work. Um, I'm seeing him on Thursday. Oh, well,
3: it won't be any good,
2: will it? Well, well no. No, you should be but yeah. he's just not going to be enjoying it as much.
3: It's funny because um, a comedy show is in a theatre, but it isn't theatre, is it? And if I'm honest, I think, I, oh gosh, I'm going to see a, a Shakespeare production next week. Or well, you can compare notes. Well, although I'm absolutely delighted to be able to say that I'm going, I think I probably speak for every single person who'll be in that audience that I'll be even more excited when it's over.
2: No, you see, lots of <laughs> people just, really love it. Don't
3: go yeah, if you don't like no, it. No, I, I love it, because I think when I'm in the moment, it's just that Shakespeare, I hope it's a, it'll probably be a truncated version, won't it?
2: Why don't you just go and see comedy? Just the hits.
0: Yeah. It's
2: Othello. How quick can that be? Yes, you see, I... I have to say I've had some of my best bonding moments with people on the planet when you know we've both been able to admit that we don't want to go and sit at the Donmar Warehouse. Nothing against the Donmar Warehouse because lots of other people absolutely love it but you can't like everything. And... Uh It's not for me. Right, uh, this one's from Sandra, who says, still loving the show. Well done, Sandra. That's the kind of spirit we like. Uh, Love listening to your podcast before I go to bed each night. I don't fall asleep. Well, I mean, that's kind of the point, Sandra, so we wouldn't mind if you did. Uh, Your guests have been great this week. I love Griefcast, so hearing your interview with Cariad was fascinating on Monday. Her views on Harry's book certainly shine a different light on the whole thing. I thought so too, Sandra. I thought she was very uh, profound about that, actually. Fred's views on French food have really inspired me to write in, as I live in France, a small village called Marciac, renowned for its international jazz festival in between Toulouse and Lourdes. This area totally fulfills fees' ideas of French eating. This area is well known for duck confit, confit, breast and fat. Oh, I don't like duck confit. It's weird, isn't it? It is just meat and fat. I find that a very
3: claggy... Yeah, yeah. Culinary possibility.
2: Uh, if you go out trying to find anything veggie is almost impossible. And I see Fred denied this, but we knew it to be true, Sandra. Chips are cooked in duck fat. Lardens are added to veg. And if you admit to being a veggie, they think you're ill and they'll offer you chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you can fight meat substitutes in the supermarket, but restaurants are way behind. Uh, Sandra adds, I hope your parents are OK, Jane. My husband has recently become a wheelchair user, which has totally opened our eyes to accessibility, as you mentioned. Steps are a nightmare and our village has installed pretty road crossings using cobbles, which are difficult to roll over and really uncomfortable. It's definitely something you don't think about until you have to. Well, Sandra, I really hope that your husband's OK. I hope you're both Coping with that, and yes, uh, take a little bag of salt out with you. It'll help with the food, but it'll also help with the slippy roads too.
3: Mm. Yeah, it is true that um, it's only when you're in that situation, and I feel for you, and, and I hope your husband is all right, Sandra. Um, but it, it, you just see you just see danger wherever you go, um, and it's just the the pavements. I mean, it's a generalisation, but the pavements in Britain are not in a terrific state. And it, I tell
2: you what, they're a lot better than they are in lots of other parts of are the they? world. Yeah. Okay. I right. think so, so, sometimes our pavements show us in the very best light, Jane. Really, some of them have been levelled up. Oh, God. <laughs> One day you'll laugh openly and joyfully, and that'll Not be when you make <laughs> jokes <laughs> like that. I won't. And it'll be time for me to go. Yes. certainly. Uh, right. Be. Do you want to do the very long email? Well,
3: this is um, from a listener who wants to respond to the interview with Jason Watkins. Um, And they say that they had their first baby in March of last year. When he was three weeks old, he ended up in hospital for 10 days to recover from urosepsis as a result of a UTI. Somehow in my sleep deprived state in the middle of the night, I sensed something wasn't right when he was pushing my breasts away. He usually couldn't get enough of them and his cries seemed weaker but more distressed than usual. We rang the equivalent of 911 and after describing his symptoms to a nurse, she quickly arranged for an ambulance to take us to the Royal North Shore Hospital. Now, this is in Sydney, isn't it? Which fortunately was just a 10 minute drive away. Uh, Henry was cared for by a brilliant team of doctors who identified and treated the UTI and sepsis. And even now, I can't quite bring myself to acknowledge that if we'd taken longer to get him to hospital, he might not have made it. Unfortunately, at eight months later, we went through the experience again with another case of urosepsis, And after advice from a urologist, we've decided to get him circumcised to help prevent another visit to A&E. Um, right. Now, there's a lot there a sort of medical wise that I'm not equipped to comment on, don't fully understand. And I certainly didn't know that circumcision might prevent a UTI, which I think is what the email is saying but I mean obviously you've, you've been there and experienced that horrendous experience um, so you know more about it than I do but um, how wonderful that the hospital staff were able to react so quickly and that Henry is okay but thank you very much for telling us mm. about it. And there's a lovely final
2: paragraph as well and we really love That's a very Julia, long email. Julia by the way. yep, yeah. We love a long email. Don't, uh, you know, don't ever feel that you have to cut it down. Tell us everything that you want to tell us. Uh, if you're ever looking for topics to cover says Julia I'd be very interested to hear your perspective on whether working part-time after returning from maternity leave is a career dead end. I'm about to return to my job as a lawyer at a suit-style international law firm three days a week and I listened to a rather depressing podcast the other day that essentially said just that. The women on the podcast also said that if you have a partner with a demanding job, getting back on the career bandwagon in a serious way will be even harder. My partner is a barrister, the wig and robe kind, which definitely falls into the demanding job category. Right now, I don't feel particularly ambitious career-wise and I'm mostly just hoping I can remember my login passwords. Not a chance. But I'd like to think that if and when the appetite comes back, that door isn't closed. I'd be interested to hear how you've navigated mingling work and family life and any advice you might give your 32-year-old selves with the benefit of hindsight. Well, I would say... Uh you've gotta get that balance between you and your partner right, and if you don't feel it's right for you to be the one that takes a bit of a back seat for a while, then I would say if there's a way to work it better for both of you, you know so the seesaw is balanced then that's a good thing to do. And also, I honestly don't know your profession well enough to give any advice on going back part-time and then hoping further down the line to become full-time. I think in broadcasting, we're quite lucky. Really lucky, yeah. As
3: as a presenter, you are not so sure about production staff.
2: No, but I think even as production staff, it can be easier to get work on a programme, you know, as opposed to working full-time across a variety of Mm. programmes. Certainly quite a lot of my... Freelance producer friends have made series, you know, during their early childcare years. So they've worked on producing, you know, 16 podcasts or going to do something for Radio 4. Uh, So they, uh, you know, other stations are available and obviously. Times Radio now, so I think that's made it easier. Um, Certainly, I was incapable of going back to work full time. Actually, after I'd had my second child, I don't really mind admitting that. I just felt I was juggling an awful lot, and uh, the one thing that I didn't, uh, I just didn't. I didn't want the family ball to drop, (laughs) so I think I cut down my work probably a bit too much, looking back on it. But at the time, it felt right. So that's the only advice I can give, really.
3: Your career has suffered because otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here now.
2: Well, I you, I want to answer this properly, Jane. No, go on. So I'm eternally grateful that uh, that I have now, you know, that I'm now doing this with you, that we did fortunately together, that other opportunities came up. You know, the Listening Project was great mm. to do in the 10 years when I was largely at home with the kids. I'm very grateful to all of that. Uh, if I could have stayed working a bit more, I would have done. But I just couldn't. So. See, I think
3: I think the whole culture, and I th- I'm imagining that in the legal wor- world, which is Julia's world, presenteeism has got to be still a thing. So being seen to be in the office, strutting your stuff, is probably much more significant than our presenting roles. Yeah, which, I agree. You, know, you could yeah. easily do a lot of prep at home, and frankly. Yeah, you can waft in if you're relatively experienced half an hour before the program and probably get away with it. I'm not saying it'll be the best thing you've ever done, but you can get away with it. And I, if my children were ill when I was doing woman's hour, I used to bring them in with me to work and it was just ignored or, you know, people pretended they hadn't seen it. Um, and I think I'm not sure that would be possible in, well, it isn't possible in 98% of jobs that women yeah. do. So I Um, But then you wonder whether the pandemic has changed the idea that in order to be taken seriously, you have to be in work all the hours. God sends. I don't know. I
2: don't know either. And I think maybe that's just something that our generation of women might be able to change a little bit. The notion that if you largely leave work or, you know, kind of, I don't know, A grade work, whatever you want to call it, uh, to look after your children when they're small, then that is a dead end. Maybe it's on us to prove that you can spend some time with your kids and come back and you actually bring more to the party than before. But I think it's really, really difficult if you haven't got that balance right at home, just between you and your partner. You know, I think there's so much resentment that can build up if one person streams ahead. And also it means that that parent doesn't really have any knowledge of what bringing up kids is actually like.
3: That is very important. No, I mean I well that's I could go on now and a seven hundred and fifty page book which nobody would read, but I'd enjoy getting out of my system. Um but I think it's also worth saying, don't be hard on yourself if frankly you can't wait to get back to work. Or if you just find yourself really enjoying, yes, some time at home with small children. But also loving it precisely because you've got the alternative of, say, three days in the office to go alongside, because I think we all need a little bit of a little bit of both. If possible, uh, that isn't to say that um, women and men who are full time carers for small kids don't actually do a brilliant job and may very well end up being hugely fulfilled. and, And I would also hope much appreciated by partners and indeed in time by the children, although the latter point I'm not so confident
2: about waiting a very long time for that. Yes, Judo, I don't think we've helped at all. But those are our experiences. But but we feel better for having a chat about Uh, it. Yes, and it is. You know, it's it's well worth hearing from our other listeners about because they might be able to be slightly less verbose and a little bit more on the money. Do you really think? Yes. (laughs)
3: Yes, <laughs> no, and by the way thank you it's fantastic to hear from people listening in Australia and New Zealand um, I mean, we have what one or two listeners in the United Kingdom as well but um, there's just something so, still something quite exciting oh, it's so
2: glamorous <laughs> it's, really, no, it's really glamorous
3: who are not in Britain, yeah, uh, Britain absolutely land lovely. of levelling up uh, so have a wonderful weekend if such a thing is possible I've got someone around, coming around tomorrow to look at my radiators uh, and we're hoping that it gets a little bit warmer next week
2: Yeah, have a lovely weekend when you get to it and we'll talk to you again on Monday. You have been listening to Off Air with Jane
3: Garvey and Fee Glover.
2: Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times Radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live. Uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 to
3: 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening, and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye.
1: Small details are big surfaces? Tight corners are odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured, or tall? Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because rust new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from rust
0: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig.